Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. Alright, third time's a charm. Round three. Action. Click. Orson, action. Zzz, do anything? <laughs> okay, so it, it's okay for now, right? Everything's everything's still working? Yep. Well, let's just wait five seconds. It'll probably stop working. Dude, I don't know what happened to my microphone there. Hmm. It's all right. Sometimes these things just happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. They seem to happen a lot to you. This is untrue. <laughs> this is well, untrue. on air okay i'll kung fu chop you with my words through the internet (laughs) come at me bro i have a new rule for how i know if i'm if i'm close enough to the microphone it's if if my mustache hairs are touching the microphone then we're good to go have you been have you been trimming you just letting it go dude we're i'm a wild man you can't 2020 man we got John the Baptist readings going on, dude. Hey, you got two weeks left in 2020. Mm-hmm. Go out with a bang. Use it you as an excuse for everything. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> yeah. You you rocking a beard right now, Rob? Nope. Clean shaven. I, I had one for deer season and then shaved Which was it successful, after. it sounds like. Very successful. Yeah, we did good. Um, I got that doe with my bow and then... Um, yeah, that buck that I got, he was a, that's a big 11 pointer. That was fun. That was really fun. That's awesome. My brother, my brother got a big 11 as well. So not quite as big as mine, just for the record and the internet to know. Was that your first, was that your first, uh, kill with the bow? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. Was that oh, a very different ever... experience? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, it's super, super fun. Totally different style of hunting. Um, yeah, I learned, I sincerely learned a lot. Kind of had to reinvent my game the last uh, couple years getting into bow hunting. So it was a big moment. Wow. And it was super cool because Johnso was with me in, in the blind. So he was pumped and everything. And <laughs> it was really fun. Speaking of uh, changing your game. Man, uh, you've been watching the Illini basketball? Oh, dude, yeah. I was a little disappointed with the uh, the Missouri game, but watched it last night. I put a, put a hurting on Minnesota. This team's really good. Everybody's talking about national championships and stuff, and uh, gosh, I hope we get to have March Madness this year. Because last year I felt like they could have gone far. What year were you when they went to that Final Four? You were there, weren't you? No, I was a sophomore. Okay, I was a senior in high school, so I missed it by missed it by a year. Dang, dang, that was sometimes fate just just frowns on us like that. What <laughs> What was that like on campus when when they made that Final Four run? Electric. <laughs> I kind of knew electric. that you were going to say that. I, I I feel like that was a setup. Yeah, it but, was awesome. Yeah, was the campus just going nuts? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like I've lived such a charmed life with sports. Like when I was a kid, I just assumed your city's basketball team always had Michael Jordan and you won six championships <laughs> in eight years. Yeah. I just, I don't know. So, of course, when I was at college, Illinois had like the best team of their of the century um, at the school. Of course, in the 80s, they had uh, the flying Illini with Nick Anderson and they, they went to the final four, I think, that year. Kenny Battle, that was a good team as well. Like 89 or something? Mm-hmm. I remember when Nick Anderson was a rookie in the NBA because I was following the NBA at the time when I was little. Basketball cards, man, dude. We were obsessed with basketball when we were kids. I didn't collect basketball cards. I only collect collected baseball cards. I had very few basketball cards, a ton of baseball cards, very few basketball Maybe some. I had very few baseball. I had lots of basketball. Really? I maybe had some football cards, but it was mostly baseball. Is it true that those the cards are worthless now and the kids don't? There's just no interest in cards. We were pretty obsessed. Like I had binders full of them. I would beg my 
older brother to go buy me some. Yeah, I still have a ton of my cards in a box, but I have heard that. I've never um I've never done any of my own research. Um <laughs> 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 that's an inside joke, guys. But uh that is actually true. I haven't. But so I, I but I have heard that they are worthless. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I've I've heard the same thing. I mean, they're yeah. objectively worthless. They're just pieces of paper with pictures on them. This is true. Hmm. Um, like if the grid would go down, they would be good for nothing but just fire for warmth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and maybe some nostalgia. <laughs> like, remember before the grid went down? Yeah. Used to think it was a tragedy when our teams lost. Yep. Well, your bow, hunt, your bow hunting skills would be very useful in a grid going down situation. Sort of, but like it's also, it's also like Rob Johnson, twenty first century bow hunting skills, which means I have to buy like the broadheads from Walmart and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Well, so. I assume Walmart would still be open. Well, okay, that's true. Yeah, as long <laughs> as I could get like pre made and ready to fire arrows and broadheads, then yes, I would be a tremendous bow hunter without the grid. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. You had, you had lots down, I would expect Walmart to stay open. But, <laughs> but you're, you're just like a lot of people out in there with candles walking through the aisles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, man. Wow. Oh, man, I just I finished a book uh the other night. I devoured it. Um a Willa Cather book called The Pref- Professor's House. I'm reading it for a book club that's not meeting for like another month so i hope maybe i'll read it again so i'm fresh but you ever read that no i've never heard of it you've read how much cather have you read have you i've I've gotten into her so i've read a lot of it but i just love her style yeah i think just the one death comes to the archbishop Mm. i haven't read i have that one and then um was she one called like antoinette or something like that my antonia Antonia, yeah. Oh my goodness. I'm sorry. I read that in high school. And when I say read, I mean my yeah. mom forcibly made me listen to the book on tape <laughs> for a summer reading assignment. It was horrible. Yeah, to a high schooler, it's boring. You should read it again. My Antonia? Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, dude. I She literally made me stand outside and she put Trigger it on, warning. Yeah. She put it on like a, a, our little stereo. And we washed our car together while we listened to my Antonia because she was like, look, you are doing this before you get back to school. And she was it summer reading? It was summer reading, man. And oh, I had procrastinated man. so bad. That's a good summer reading assignment. Well, you went to a Catholic high school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That explains it. Yeah. She was not a Catholic, but she writes you know, a lot of Catholic characters and uh, seems to understand it from the inside. You'd think she were Catholic, but she wasn't. Um, but she was like Episcopalian, wasn't she? She like, converted to pre- Episcopalian uh, okay. from, I think, a Baptist upbringing. Okay, which is a little bit more Catholic, but not all. What do you like about her writing? Um, it's one of those where the story is not really the driving thing; it's more the character, uh, and the characters are just so. Um, they're almost more real than real people, you know, like the way she talks about their inner experience and stuff like that. It's, um, I remember one time my, I was at the driving range with my dad and it was after we'd read Brideshead with Father Oaks and I just get, I bought my dad a copy. I'm like, you got to read this book. Um, and I'd, I'd read it in college. Blaha gave me a, an old edition of Brideshead when I was in college and I read it and I was surprised. It was like when I first started getting into reading my junior, senior year of college. And um, then we read it again and Oaks talked about his whole like theory on the Eucharist as the protagonist of that book. And I thought my dad would like it and he, he devoured it and we were at the driving range. He's like, Hey, I read that book. And he said something like the people lived so intensely, like the people in the book seemed to live life. So I think he used the word intensely, which was interesting because not a lot happens in that book. You know, he goes to, I think the, most wild thing the guy does is go to Mexico. Doesn't he live in Mexico for a while? The main, the main character and then come back and he is engaged to Julia and all that stuff. And it's just kind of like a bunch of rich 
British people acting hoity-toity. But there is something about the way he writes that's you just like you want to know what happens. You know, they uh, they fall in love deeply. They they feel tragedy deeply. They um, like the religion is so important to them. It's not a matter of like oh just be a good person. It's like they get the they get the stakes of everything. You know, like heaven and hell and the state of grace and like the way that it ends with the dad and everything like that. So it's similar to evil and Wah. It's just a little bit more, it's just a little bit more genteel. Um, hmm. the, the people just, it's like manners. It's a little bit Jane Austen. Like when you're talking about your experience with your mom and my Antonia, I felt that way about reading Jane Austen in high school. Hmm. It's like, what is this? All these manners <laughs> and stuff. It was just so boring. It's like, Downton Abbey or something, which of course then you get into it and you're older. Um, Monster drugs. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it's a, the book was about kind of aging this, this professor who has accomplished a lot um, and his daughters are, are grown and he's kind of like looking back on his life. And now there's all this, he'd been poor his whole life. And now his, his family had kind of come into some money and um, he was looking back on the student that he had that died, uh, who was kind of the reason they came into money because he patented this engine and then died and willed it to his daughter who was, he was engaged to. And, and like, there were all these memories of, of relationships that he had that were kind of like the treasures of his life. And now money had kind of not corrupted in a crass way, but just sort of like undermined, uh, his the kind of pureness of his scholarly pursuits and wh why he became a professor in the first place. And then his, his relationships to his wife and his daughter and his colleagues mm -hmm. and stuff were all kind of just sort of, uh, sullied by this, this utilitarian thing where it's like, Oh, I, I never thought I was living for comfort before. And he sort of longs for this, um, a little bit more innocent, Yeah. So it's just a lot of, a lot of questions of like, what's the, what's the purpose of life? And, um, it's like anything you read this particular story and it's so particular. It's like in this time and place and culture and, you know, small liberal arts college and, uh, and yet you can, you can see yourself in the characters very easily. Cool. So I don't know why this reminded me of of this or that reminded me of this but did you read Mets you may remember but there was a short story that Cywick made us read in homiletics about a bishop like I and I can't remember what it's called but this guy was a like either a big time monsignor or a bishop somewhere mm -hmm. and he had like he was real sick um and it was right before he died and he ended up like getting to see his mother before he died and Cywick's um, whole reading of it was like going back to to his mom was she was like the one person that that knew him by his name. And so it was like kind of this initial experience of heaven. Um, anyway, I just maybe maybe it was the whole kind of like that professor noticing the being sullied by money or or whatever it was. And this one was more about like just like titles and prestige and even, even in like ecclesiastical stuff of like being, he had obviously let it go to him more so than um, just like the, the importance of the offices and everything. Um, I just remember reading it and being like, yeah, like it's, it was interesting. I didn't really get it. And then Cywick explained it and I was totally like enthralled mm -hmm. by that. Do you remember that Mets? I don't remember that story, but um, that definitely sounds like a Cywickism. Like that, that sounds like something he would do. He, he loved, uh, mom, child relationships. Yeah. Mm. He loved those. Yeah, I remember when he preached, what did his, his mom? Yeah. I think his mom passed away while we were at Mundelein, weren't we? Yeah. Yeah, she did. And his homily, uh. You guys had the funeral up there, right? Yeah, I can't, I can't remember where it was, but. I don't know, he always he seemed to be a guy that had allowed a lot of grief to transform into 
um, I don't know, at least love to transform his grief into something real. So, yeah, I mean, so, so many of his homilies uh, spoke about the love for a mom, but also, I don't know, he seemed to integrate suffering really well into uh, just his everyday business, but then even the way that he preached, like, dang, this guy does see the world differently, and I want to see it like him, even though he actually can't physically see, like, two feet in front of him. Yeah. I want to see, like, Sywick. So, yeah. <laughs> I was just uh, talking a lot about that guy. And he goes, say what you will about Sywick's teaching method. We all remember what he said. <laughs> it's true. It's so true. He, yeah, I he saw homiletics as an art. Uh, yeah. he, he saw preaching as as an event, and I think that's he got that right big time. Mm-hmm. That that has always stayed with me, and so the the way that he crafted the whole class around, I think like the fundamental, uh, correct position of what a what a homily is, dude. It's yeah. I mean, hopefully it'll stay with me forever. But that I just wrote him. A, I just wrote him a letter because I. I finished this uh, article on preaching for uh, the Word on Fire Journal, which I'm excited mm-hmm. about. It'll be in the March issue. Nice, dude. Cool. Yeah. Um, and I used a short story from from him on mothers and children. Uh, the Christmas story, did he have you read that one? With the little kids who stay up to see if it's really Jesus who leaves in presents on Christmas morning. Hmm. I yeah, doesn't I ring a bell either. It's a, it's a Francois Marriac story about um, childhood. And uh, he he's like pre-First Communion age. So he, he stays home while his, his parents and brothers go to midnight mass. And he, he made a deal with one of his school chums to, to stay up to see if it's really... They t- the parents say it's the baby Jesus who comes down the chimney and leaves candy in your shoes and all this stuff. And he wants to know if it's true. And he's like dozing and hearing the, the bells for midnight mass from the nearby cathedral and imagining the mass and the hosts and his mom going up to the communion rail and coming back with her eyes closed. And then all of a sudden he sees her walking in to put the presents uh, by the crash. And he just like has this epiphany and, and real and kind of sees the imaginative connection between that it's really it really is Jesus somehow mysteriously the spirit of god in her like providing these gifts and he falls asleep in her in her arms as she carries him off to bed and um yeah so i, I just talked about like the the whole sacramental imagination that he 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 said i wrote in the margins of that story when i pulled it out to to write this article uh i don't know how people come to faith but they lose it by a failure of imagination mm. um and so I was just trying to reflect on like, how does it go? How do you go from like the credulity of a kid? Um, like my, my older brother, when he was little, saw Santa in the mall and said, that's not Santa. <laughs> and my mom was like, why did you, why do you say that? And he said, where's his sleigh? And she goes, it's on the <laughs> roof. And he goes, oh yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> um so how do you move from like that credulity where you just believe it, whatever, you know, because anything's possible in this world to faith, which is that it's not that it's less wonderful. It's actually more wonderful, more enchanted than you can see, rather than as you grow up kind of just turning religion into fables. And what's really real is like morality or choices or stuff like that, that church is about building community rather than communing with this supernatural God who wants to transform you and the way you see, the way you are. Um, and it's that, you like letting, letting the mysteries actually penetrate your imagination. But that can't, I mean, to your point about Sywick's preaching as event, um, you never got the impression from his preaching that he was like, systematically trying to form your worldview you know he was he was it was very disorganized like he'd go up there with seven sheets of paper and not know where he was and just kind of be talking off the dome but (laughs) i guess you knew like knowing him and you just like run into him on campus staring up at a squirrel in a tree 
and you just look at the guy and you're like, this guy sees the world differently. So I, I was always compelled to, to listen to him. The first time I heard his preaching was at uh, the parish in town up there uh, he, where he helped on a weekend. And I'd never, I didn't know who he was. I hadn't taken any classes from him. I was still in pre-theology. I'm like, this guy's teaching homiletics. Like, I don't understand a word he says. Um, so he preaches like that at parishes as well, not just oh, yeah. at seminary. Mm-hmm. How would you describe his his preaching? Like for like, if you're, can you describe it for the listeners just so that they can get a little cue of? I would say it's eclectic. He does. He, <laughs> That's the exact word I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He. Like you think, you think the message is pretty simple from the gospel, you know, and then all of a sudden he makes it more complex. It reminds me of, uh, there's some quote I read somewhere that like people who write prose try to take something complex and make it simple. And poets try to take something simple and make it complex. And both are different ways of getting at the truth. Hmm. You know, if you're trying to write an article about science, you're like taking very complicated theories and and trying to trying to say it in a way that's easily understandable to the layman whereas a poet is taking something simple like a like a tree and trying to just unravel it and and make all sorts of connections and and stuff in order for you to to see the simple as like revealing something deeper you know i would say he's more of a poet than a scientist for sure um yeah that's an understatement. That's definitely true. So I wrote him this note because I know he doesn't do email, so I wasn't going to email him the article. I printed it out, and uh, I think he, he just he just email. opted out of email. Like I'm just not. Can you imagine? I'm just not doing it. That's the other thing about professors, man. Like you obviously were never in a parish as a pastor. You just decided when the computer came out. No, I'm not doing that. <laughs> it's been decades, man. Everybody's on computers now. Uh, he did have when we had him he did have an iphone which he carried around well he somebody had given it to him and he actually liked it it seemed because he could watch i can't remember who it was but he could watch a film critic on youtube with it Mm. and (laughs) but he would carry around oh my gosh i'm like tearing up thinking about how much i love this guy but uh he would carry it around in the box like in the actual iPhone box. And then he would take it out like if he needed it. It was amazing. That's like awesome. I I couldn't have thought to do that. I remember thinking that when he was showing it to us one day. Like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. It's awesome. Man. That's how you keep the people from putting a chip in you. You just like I'm not I'm not using, I'm not letting this thing become a part of my life. It's a, this is a tool I use for a very specific purpose. Yeah, getting getting chained to it. Yeah, and he <laughs> yeah. was never trying to. Yeah, he was never trying to convince anybody of anything. He was right. just up there sharing what, like, what the gospel had had spoken to him, and honestly, doing it in a pretty unimpressive way too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you kind of had to, and this was sort of the point of the article too. Is like these those sort of epiphanies like they'd they'd happened to me baron when i was a kid i I used an example of a baron homily that just kind of bowled me over and an image that that did that where i I felt like the kid in the story where all of a sudden you just see like the mass is this eternal sacrifice and it's for me and the whole world and um and then also it it inflames your love for god and makes you want to do something for him because he's done something so so great and costly for you instead of uh just notional assent like newman says of like mm-hmm. yeah i believe that's true that's really jesus up there but it doesn't really impact your life much um like at some point you have to the the truth has to kind of the uh, the sheer objectivity of it has to penetrate your subjectivity your experience we talked about that was it last time with the media thing um that both are important and he was the kind of guy like if you went to mass and you were expecting the homilist to just you to be a passive observer and just to be impressed and inspired without having to work at it without having to actually like come open to being transformed um 
In other words, like the homilist wasn't, the, he didn't expect the homily to do all the work for you. You know what I mean? It was, he was unfolding something that had happened to him and you were, you were kind of allowed in. Yeah. Um, so to that end, I remember when I, what I put in the note to him was, uh, when I gave my deacon homily up at Mundelein. I remember it. Uh, it was very short. I tried to like, I tried to get it down to, you know, it's a morning daily mass. I tried to not make it this big thing, but, uh, it was the reading from St. James where he says something like, we're just dust. And, uh, it was about the resurrection. I just was like, what, you know, everything that we do, um, from a worldly perspective as priests in our, our lives, our, our careers, our spiritual lives, like all of the, all of the stuff we do and make will one day just evanesce. It'll be, you know, if there's no eternal life, it's pointless. Um, I use the image of the, uh, the graves in Jerusalem on the East gate hill, like all of those graves. Do you remember that? Yeah. With the rocks on them. Yeah. And this, uh, tour guide told, I was like, so are there people in these graves? And he's like, Oh no, they're all empty. Cause you know, people were buried so long ago that, they disintegrated in, into dust and the tombs are not airtight. So the dust just blew away. So there's like all these people are just gone. Their bones aren't even in there anymore. Um, I'm like, that's us, dude. That's what it means. Like from dust to dust, we shall return. Um, so, you know, the resurrection is what, what makes anything meaningful, even the smallest, most impermanent, act if it's the will of god you know rings in eternity and and that's and then the, the gospel was uh like whoever's not against us is for us um when jesus said hey we saw somebody preaching in your name or doing miracles in your name should we stop them and jesus like no don't do that um and i made some point some connection to like evangelization and um i don't know like it, it just didn't it didn't ring true i guess and looking back on it i could pull up the homily i don't remember all the details but he said to me after on the way to breakfast because i was very eager for his feedback of any of all people i wanted him to tell me good good job on the homily i remember uh, the feedback he gave you do you remember what he said yeah he said the first half was was you it was it was like that was excellent and the second half was dated yeah. Like, it, did he say like Archbishop Gregory's afro? <laughs> exactly. So it's like bell bottoms. <laughs> it's like bell bottoms or Wilton's afro. <laughs> Which that's so funny because we'd all walk by those old composite photos of the classes, and and his afro just sticks out like all the seventies pictures and the guys with their mustaches, and Wilton's got this big afro. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, that's that looked great at the time, and now it just kind of looks a little silly. Maybe they're coming back, though. Yeah, mullets <laughs> are coming back. I had to stop some high schoolers the other day and ask them if mullets are a thing. And they they are. <laughs> this is just a head. This is a warning. <laughs> mullets are coming. Okay? Unironic mullets? Unironic mullets. Actually fashionable mullets are coming I'm gonna, back. I'm writing that down as a possible title. <laughs> <laughs> Band name, I call it. Um, dang, man. Yeah, he, he's amazing. I yeah, I hope he's doing well. Me too. Yeah, maybe he'll listen to this on his iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> we miss you, mm. man. We were so gifted, so so many good teachers. Yeah, yeah. No Explains kidding. why we're such good priests, <laughs> such good podcasters. Mm-hmm. Golly. Good times, guys. Well, yeah. it does. There is something about. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I guess I, I can't really make the exact connection, but just reminiscing on Father Sywick and um, his impact on all of us. You know, I'm I'm about to leave here. I'm about to get transferred from my parish to a new one down south of Atlanta, huh. and so I'll be leaving. Leaving Rome, Georgia, the best, I'll hold to it, the best Rome in the world. Um, and it's weird 
I've never transferred parishes before. Um, but like it, everything that, I, everything that I do and all the people that I interact with, it does, it just feels very important, um, and nostalgic mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, and now more than ever in priesthood, I don't feel like I am, um, trying to convince anybody of anything. Um, I guess is a way to say it, but, but it's just like straight up enjoying all the time that I have left up here. And it's been super delightful to live priesthood this way because almost all of my time is filled with, um, I mean, you know, doing the, the, the prayer routine, the, the normal prayer routine here at the parish, it's been, it's been good. But other than that, I, I just spend time hanging out with all of my parishioners and, uh, I know there's something that like the finality of this, of this assignment and knowing that I'm, I'm not going to be here much longer. Uh, it's kind of like, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm not dying obviously, but I'm not going to be a part of their lives anymore on the day to day. And so it's like just soaking up each moment as best as possible. And I'll tell you, it, it has changed the way that, um, that I go about my business and it's kind of reprioritized, not reprioritized, just helped me to, to see things in a different way um, that I'm, I really enjoy. There's, there's something that feels very leisurely about living priesthood right now. Uh, not as in I'm not busy. I'm maybe busier, more busy now than I ever have been, but it's all time occupied with, basically either Jesus or, or my people. And dude, it's, it's going to be hard leaving, but it's been very, very good, uh, to just kind of soak up these last couple of, last couple of weeks and last month or so up here at the parish. Um, but I don't know, there's something about like, I think of all the stuff that Cywick taught and lived and I don't think he was ever afraid of death, like the end of things. And I think it allowed him to kind of live in what was most important constantly. Um, and he allowed that to shape his vision and how he interacted with people and how he interacted with trees and squirrels and books. And like he he did see so many things correctly. Um, and I think, you know, when I first showed up to the parish, it was like, this is what I need to do. I need to get out there and evangelize, which is great. And I I don't want to knock that at all. But now it's like, hey, just enjoy, just live in the sweetness of what God's provided for you right now. And it's actually bore a ton of fruit, you know, just being able to spend a ton of time with people and to have more intimate conversations and to speak from the heart in a new way um, with, with parishioners. Yeah. So I don't know. The, the connection is not totally obvious to me between those things, but that just, uh, that came up around it. Well, I mean, the, well, the question I always have is like, what, what makes you want to listen to somebody priest or otherwise? Um, what makes you want to go to confession to them and hear their counsel and take to heart what they have to say about you and your life is, is not so much that they're, really eloquent or even really impressive, you know, like, oh, wow, that priest is so holy or whatever. Um, I mean, there's certainly a holiness about Father Sywick, um, Father Hennessy, you know, some of these guys where you're just like, what, this guy, these guys know the Lord. Um, They're not messing around. Uh, They go to pray and they, and they mean it. Um, But on the other hand, you know, they, they haven't, they don't have like a ton of accolades to their names. They'll never be bishops, you know. Um, but they've <clears throat> they've done the work themselves. Like to to your point about what your experience right now, it's like um, they've cultivated their imaginations. They've they've listened for God, and so you want to listen to them. Uh, and that's the that's the step I f- I feel like we skip. Um, kind of reminds me of. Uh, it's a loose analogy, but when I was playing jazz as a high school kid, I was really into it. And, um, 
practice a lot my saxophone and transcribing old solos from masters and trying to learn <clears throat> learn things in all 12 keys and like build up my vocabulary of improvisation and uh <clears throat> then i would just you get up and like do a solo jamming with people and you want to imitate the guys that are like not the old masters but like the guys that are playing right now which is all this modern jazz that's like kind of out of the key signature and purposely kind of um dissonant and things like that but it's kind of like abstract modern art where you don't, you don't really have to be able to draw an apple you can just sort of like scribble and that's what that's what people are making these days is like scribbles and shapes and not faces and people and fruit anymore so you can kind of skip like the basics and go to just like trying to sound like you know the people who are on the vanguard right now and I felt like um, a guy like Baron, you know, you, as a seminarian to try to imitate him is so it's so funny. It's like trying to it's like a high school kid trying to imitate John Coltrane or something like this guy put in the work, man. He, he's read all the classics. Uh, you know, he's just he's formed by this stuff. His imagination is completely formed by all, all of this, you know, Thomas Aquinas and all this literature and art and theology and Paul Tillich and um and same with the other guys like you you don't just uh become this really convincing evangelist that's what I thought like I'm, I'm gonna get out to the parish and I'm just gonna bowl people over with my awesome homilies and then the church is gonna be filled actually a lady said said to me like my third or fourth year or just before I was about to leave this lady great family that would come every week uh kids in high school involved in my youth group and stuff and um, she came to talk to me about something else and she just said, you know, father, when you first got here, I thought, man, in, in a few, few years, it's going to be hard to find a seat in here because, uh, because his homilies are so good. And then, uh, you know, three or four years passed and it, it's still the same empty church. <laughs> I was like, wow, you you just kind of <laughs> like you? reflected my own <laughs> inner pride slash humiliation that's it <laughs> uh i was so impressed with myself and I, I thought man i can conquer the world and the only reason that the church is not doing well is because we're not working hard enough at it we're not talented enough and and uh that just is like so man if the lord does not build the house in vain to the builder's labor like I think the most important work that I did in the parish was pray and read and be with people and show up for them. And the homilies, if they flowed from that, and if people said, I trust this guy and I, I, I'm going to listen to him because he speaks truth, you know, I, I, it didn't have to be that impressive. It could be something simple. And it often was those homilies where people would come up to you and you feel like you see it in their eyes that they did have an epiphany from something you said. It's usually some offhand thing you didn't even mean to say. Like that's that's the spirit. Um, because we're bound together by this thing. Like why 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 do you listen to anybody? You know why do you why do you accept what your mom says when you're a kid about God or Santa or whatever? It's because you trust them. Like this person loves me, and uh, I can I can listen to what they say. To me, still, like the most important feedback is from my dad. I sent him the article and he liked it. And I'm like, that's okay. That's all I need. I don't care if anybody else likes it. <laughs> you know? And he has. Yeah. It reminds, I was thinking, um, I don't want this to be too big because I know we got time coming here. But uh, I've been thinking about it a lot just because I'm actually, I'm reading uh, the 12 rules by Peterson right now. Uh, one of the Newman students gave it to me for Christmas and it's fun. And, but in one of the rules he uses um, the end of four quartets by T.S. Eliot, which is really beautiful. Um, but just that line of like, we won't cease from exploration. And then at the end of all the exploring, we'll, we'll arrive at the place that we started and we'll know it for the first time. And all this, it reminds me of like whatever Elliot was getting at um, in, in that. Cause I've read that line a lot through, through the years. And it's always struck me as like really true and beautiful. It just, 
it, but it's very hard to pin down exactly what he means by it. But I don't know. There's something. There's something in all of this that 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 is um, true. Of even that. That's a that's a profound thing you just said, Bisk. Of like, yeah. Who who cares if my dad liked it? Like that's a that's a big time article you're writing, man. Like that's a legit journal you're sending it to, and um, to be able to say that's a really beautiful, really beautiful thing. So it's like there's the integration of that, like that little Connor with all of his like insecurities and everything, um, but like being known and loved, man. That's that's good stuff. Yeah, I don't think he listens to the podcast, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's his loss. Yeah. Well, yeah, in that case, just take back everything I just said. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe he does. Well, y'all got any advice for for me as I um, leave my first parish here? When, when are you leaving again? It'll be early January. Wow, that's yeah. that's quick. It is quick. It is quick. Dude, it's it's so tough. Yeah. It stinks leaving. Just be totally distant. Don't let the people tread on you. <laughs> Cut ties. Try not to, try not to make too yeah. many connections because then it's painful. Yeah. Right. Aloof, standoffish, cold. Yep. All right, I'll just I'll just be myself. Just, but you should, just you should definitely me. hint at you should definitely hint at like moving costs a lot of money. So <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. tell him, just tell him you're welcome, and then leave. <laughs> Drop the mic. Yeah, yeah. you know it's not me; it's you guys. That's why I'm leaving. <laughs> oh man, it's it is really tough, um, but it, it's been fun. Just kind of. Uh, not necessarily being objective driven or like agenda driven while here. It's just the only thing that I have left is just time with people that, mm. that that's, you know, you, you, it's not enough time to do new projects, not enough time to start any programs or prep any classes or teach anybody really anything um, substantial, you know, that, that would take a significant amount of time. But with the limited amount of time, it, it does hone in on what just like a sweetness, a uh, super, super sweetness that's, that's been present here. Um, yeah. So it's been a grace time for sure, but I am going to be sad to leave. Yeah. Tell you the new parish is lucky though. Yeah. Dude. <laughs> Rome's loss is their gain. Yeah. I was just, all the, the parishioners in Rome here are probably going to move down to Peachtree City. <laughs> if, if I, dude, if think I about know. how how many people will be in the pews in a few years at the new place, though. Gosh, yeah. dude, it'll be tens. They don't even know what's what's coming. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be crazy. We should probably. I need to let the pastor know to expand the church right now. Let's <laughs> <laughs> go on and get that out of the way. Uh, when do you go like full time with the army? It'll be uh, after a year and a half, so it's three years of parish work. Mm. Uh, so I did the STL year, three years of parish work, and then I'll go full time active duty um, with the army. So it'll be July of twenty twenty two. Yeah, nice. Yeah. So then that's why they wanted to split up these assignments, like a year and a half and a year and a half instead of the two and the one, so I could have a little bit more time at the new place. Good call. I have one more one more little story that I think kind of fits with what we're talking about. Um, you got a sec, Mike? Yeah. Uh, I was reading another book uh, for another book club called... How many book clubs are you in, dude? I'm, I'm, well, three now because of this, with the, <laughs> students, the students I'm reading. Nerd. Nerd. Yeah. <laughs> Set up, dude. All right, I gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> Set him up, knock him down. It's called the the author Zena Hits. She's a professor somewhere, but she uh, did a little My time name. in the Madonna uh, Madonna House. She 
I think she was Jewish growing up and became Catholic and kind of had a little bit of an existential crisis with her academic career and was like wondering what's the the point of this and um, can I do something that's more meaningful than just trying to like get accolades and publish and the whole status rat race with academia. Um, And anyway, she ended up discerning out and then becoming a professor at a, a small liberal arts college, I think in, in classics or something. And, and it's just a book in defense of the intellectual life for everybody, the common man. It's not just some property of people in ivory towers to, to study things like astronomy or the Aeneid or, you know, the, like these things that are not u- utilitarian in their ends. Um, and she uses examples of like ordinary people who, uh, who like there's this one irish guy working class and he he might have been some kind of socialist or radical um but anyway he wanted to opt out of like the industrial mode of being and how dehumanizing it was on the assembly lines and stuff in the factories and he would just invite these young people uh that worked in these factories out to this um acreage behind his behind his place and he had a telescope and he would look up at the stars and teach them about the constellations and all this stuff. And um, it would just kind of expand their world to, I think you said something earlier that made me think of that, like the pettiness of politics and um, stuff like that just sort of goes away when you realize how big the world is and how wonderful it is. And, and you stop needing so much in terms of like grasping at possessions when you can, you have this own little, your own little secret love of, of the world and knowledge and things like that. Um, anyway, the story I'm thinking of is this, uh, it's from a movie she talks about, and I can't remember the name of the movie. It's old, but it was about this Hollywood guy who writes sort of like dumb comedy TV shows, slapstick stuff, and um, gets depressed and feels like he wants to make a difference in the world and help humanity. And these, you know, this career is not doing anything to help people. Um, and he's kind of insulated from normal working day people's experience. So he decides he's going to do something radical. He gives up his livelihood and, and goes to try to live with the homeless and hops freight trains and stuff like that. And, um, but he can never really exit his life cause he's famous and people keep following him around. And anytime he gets in trouble, they kind of bail him out and feed him and people are taking pictures of him. Like, Oh, look at this guy used to be this and now he's this. And, so he can never really enter into the experience of of what it is to be poor and uh, his attempt at making a difference totally fails and then he goes back to his old life but then some some other twist of fate happens where there's a case of mistaken identity and he ends up being thrown in jail for something he didn't do and now nobody knows who he is and um he uh it's kind of like the count of monte cristo in reverse or something uh he he's in jail and now he knows what it's like to be completely at the whims of powerful people and having no recourse and no respect. And he's sitting there in jail, miserable with all these other miserable men and they're watching TV and one of his old shows comes on rerun and everybody's laughing their heads off at this, this show that he, he wrote. And he has this epiphany that like what I was doing before actually connected with, with normal people people that I never would have known in jail and lifted them out of their misery, even just for a moment. Um, and all my attempts at like crossing the rich poor divide and solving social issues and like these things that have been with humanity since the beginning, sin, um, like my attempt at making a difference just made a spectacle of them and myself. It was, it was narcissistic. It was my own ego rather than just kind of like the gift that I have I can live with integrity. I don't have to live for the money or the fame or anything like that, but I've been given this gift to do something, do something and, and helped it helped these guys, you know? Um, and I never knew it. And it's kind of a, I don't know, maybe a trite example, but somewhat with preaching, like you think, you think the end is like what you should be aiming at is some like persuasion. At the end of the day, you want your parish to look different because you, you did or said something. And um, it kind of puts the cart before the horse. If you just focus on, to me, like, what what is my gift? What is God's will for me right here, right now? Like, even down to the particular homily. Like, should I say this or that, you know? 
what did Gus say to you, Rob? Like when you had three or four points you wanted to make, like we'll yeah. just do one this year and then the next one the other year, and just pick just pick the one that seems like you have the strongest pull towards, and then if it's God's will, three years later in the lectionary, you can use the second point. Yeah, there's a, there's a disposition that's so calm about that, and like I don't, I'm not after a particular result. Um, and God somehow in His plan uses all of our gifts. Like I want there to be Jerry Seinfelds out in the world that their main thing in life is to think of jokes, you know, um, because people, people get something out of that it makes life more human, more joyful. Um, and like letting God orchestrate the whole thing. And sometimes our ego is well-intentioned, but just as egotistical as, as like a sin, you know, um, so that's my advice to you, Mike, is just let go and let God. That's my point. Whoa. <laughs> Powerful. Have you ever thought about that, dude? Have you ever thought I... about just letting go, letting God? No, no. I've thought about, you know, clinging tighter and trying to do it on my own. But when then when you said that, that phrase, let go and let God, I was like, whoa. Nice, I feel like dude. I just got convinced of something. There you go. That's why I started talking. Yes. That's why we made the podcast. Right. Yep. To cause to cause epiphanies. To... <laughs> <laughs> Causal epiphanies. Mm. Yep. Well, yeah. I'm glad we were we we made it work after all the technical difficulties. Yeah, thanks for that. That's good. We just spun gold. Weaved it even. Okay, well I need to go celebrate La Misa. Okay. Que le vaya muy bien. Muchísimas gracias. Dang, that's some culture right there. All right. All right, peace. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Good girl.